Thank you for watching and listening to the best barbecue show. I'm here with Brian Butler, head owner, or uh, head butcher and owner of Salt and Time. Uh, I just watched him uh, walk away from a hindquarter that he was training a guy on. Yeah, a little training session with uh, one of my new butchers. Uh, he's super excited about getting to do it. So you guys have a, a, an awesome restaurant plus, you know, more butchering than uh, I've ever seen in Austin. Right in front of you, I picked up some lamb hearts. I picked up uh, all kinds of just kind of, what do you call it? What do you call the insides? Ophels. The ophels. Uh, I picked up some hot dogs. You guys have just a, a spread over there. You even have uh, Jess Prowl's Hardcore Carnivore stuff. Oh, yeah. We love Jess and all her products. have been really great. Um, yeah, my shtick usually is if it comes off an animal, I can get it for you, you know. <laughs> and so do you go by what the farms have? How are you deciding what's in the, you know, what's getting chopped up every day? Well, it really comes down to my process of breaking beef. Um, I produced uh, like processor quality cuts, which is how we would order them if we were buying from box programs, but these are all fabricated in-house. Um, I do a little bit of box beef just to keep up on like strips and ribeyes and, and bone-in ribs. Um, just can't quite keep up with the volume of it. Um, but basically what determines, you know, what goes in the case is what I have left. You know, it's, we, we've opened a shop that we want to be sustainable, meaning that we can, we can sustain ourselves on what we can cut without having to supplement with a lot of extra box programs. Cause those are very myopic in view, um, where you're only using the same thing, uh, and leaves everything else that's not on the menu is going to waste or getting sold as a inferior product. I, I think, you know, some of the most, uh, quote unquote, inferior products are my favorite such as like the Ophel uh, shank meats, which are incredibly flavorful. They're usually not really seen as a high value items, but they're actually really good. Um, and with the advent of like big green eggs and these bigger, larger cookers can really handle um, pieces like that, even during the summer. Yeah, Vince, uh, one of your guys actually turned me on to the hanger steak, which is an amazing cut and is often, I'm now finding it's like kind of in the back of the case wherever you go. Uh, and it, it, it's delicious. Yeah, if you can even find it. Hangers are really hard to uh, sell, uh, typically in retail, because they don't have a long shelf life. What's unique about the hangers is that it is the only internal muscle that we sell as a steak on the animal. All the other muscles are like the heart and the pancreas and some other smaller muscles, but the hanger is actually located inside the abdomen, uh, right next to the liver, uh, and the aorta actually runs right in between it at the top part of it. Um, but the hanger is known for having a very strong minerally flavor. For sure. Um, and that's mainly because it lives right next to the liver. So it has a very strong, you know, liver flavor, um, which is really, really uh, nice. Uh, it's also a coarse-grained uh, muscle, very similar to, like, flank steak, yeah. sirloin flap, uh, uh, skirt steak. Um, and those steaks just eat as good as anything else. On it has place. a good marbling, though. It's really oh, a solid. Yeah. It cooks up. You can sourcing. slice it. That's or... sourcing, you know. Like, yeah. You know, one thing. Uh, if it looks good as it's hanging, I know it's going to look good in the case. So we're really selective about what we bring in. So when you look at a side of beef, I mean, you're, you're generally getting whole sides, right? When, well, quarters, but yeah. So when you look at that, are you, can you just see in your head where the cuts need to be made? How, how, how are the basics of butchering? Like if someone looks at a piece of meat, are you just kind of like, you just know where to cut? or? Well, there's a few things that tie into it. Um, 
originally when I went to a trade school to learn my craft, and what we spent the most time on originally was anatomy, uh, learning muscles, learning bone structure, skeletal structure, et cetera. Um, and before we even picked up a knife, we had to basically draw out a carcass and, and draw where these things are. Um, there's very clear, obvious breakpoints that we adhere to um, because it'll allow us to make the break with doing the least amount of damage or having to cut through the least amount of bone. Um, and these are these are not things that we do specifically. This is the way it's done, standard you know practices sure. basically. Um, but as far as like looking at a carcass uh, and knowing where to make the cuts, first of all, my process is known as seam butchery, uh, which is a little different than say continental style butchery, which is where a lot of it can be done on a bandsaw. That's where you see like uh, like bone-in chuck roast and seven-bone steaks, uh, or sirloins with the bone in and stuff like that. These are and this is a totally legit way of doing things, but a little differently than I do it. Um, but it, like we were watching Sam break that that hindquarter back there today and that was an angus carcass uh and it was very lean on the lean side it had a very good outside yield grade uh, which is different from marbling grade uh, but what's nice about it to train on is that you can see the muscles and the seams from the outside so you can see these white lines that are basically where these two muscles join together and there's a fat seam in between that when you can see that it's really easy to you know identify where your cuts need to be and like i can look on the hindquarter i can spot the the, the tri-tip the culotte uh, you know, strip loin, you know, everything that's from the outside, all of the round muscles, everything, they're all very clear. Now that compared to the Akiyushi beef I bring in, the F1 Akiyushi I bring in, uh, where it has, you know, it's more fat, significantly yeah. more fat the on the outside Marbling is it. insane. Yeah. Um, that's a little harder because you can't see those cuts. And that's where uh, another part of this comes in, and that's muscle memory. Is once you do this enough, your body kind of kicks in. And you know, um, like what I try to teach people is when they do these things, like we do basically beef, pork, and lamb here. We do some other things, some game from time to time. But these four-legged ruminants are all put together the same way. And once you learn that anatomy, it translates to, to every one of those species. And so you start to learn, like, proportion uh, as to, to where your breaks need to be, um, as well as to what to expect when you go to cut into something. And what I've been trying to train these guys on mostly is, like, the point of the hip bone as it is on the outside, uh, because that's really important for one of my favorite cuts, the bavette steak or the bottom sirloin flap. So I'm really sure that they're getting all of it, not leaving it some behind. Uh, Old-timers will know the bavette steak is what used to be called steak tails, and you would only get steak tails on the end of your T-bone, and T-bones fell out of fashion 20-something years ago, practically. Yeah. Um, they're coming back a little they're bit. They're coming back a little bit, uh, but what people are realizing is don't cut them thin anymore. Cut them as big yeah, you as had you some can. monsters there yeah. well, we the do, other day. You know, uh, Dario Ciccini, you know, one of the most famous butchers in the, in the world, uh, he's famous for the steak Florentine, which is a full vertebrae cut basically two-inch thick T-bone steak. Um, not only that, but what he cuts over there are usually Piedmontese, which are very big, so the T-bone is, like, just humongous, you know, so he cuts these huge steaks. Um, but that's really what I would suggest to do on, on T-bones. Um, but it would be the last little bit of the, of the tail, so you'd have the bottom of the sirloin, or bottom of the strip loin, and then this little, very tender part, and they would cut, like, there'd be three inches of, like, tail left on that T-bone. Um, but, you know... Those places went out of business a long time ago, like Safeway and stuff like that, and we don't have Safeway in Texas anymore. That was the last time I saw yeah. steak tails in the case. But you also see them as, like, flat bags. Uh, for years, I would buy flat meat and just grind it, not knowing what I was grinding was actually that bottom sirloin flat, which just wasn't popular back then. You know, it's huge now. Um, you're seeing a lot of restaurants. Um, and then, you know, like, you know, you pointed out, you know, here one thing we'd like to have is we like to have those harder-to-find cuts, not just on our menu, but where you can take it home and get it. To go back to the hanger steak you're mentioning, uh, most folks won't do hangers because they have short shelf life. And if they don't have a place to go with that high-value cut, it really becomes a, a lost leader for them, and they'll, they'll, they'll try to avoid that. Um, they usually sell them, like, in vacuum and never, never clean. The one downside of the hanger is that it needs, uh, it needs to be manicured to be clean because it's a very thick uh, um, connective tissue right in the middle of it. You get basically two steaks off of one piece, but you can't, it has to be removed, so you have to kind of know how to remove that. 
Um, so. And it's not an expensive cut. Not typically. Um, I think right now we're retailing in the low 20s on it. Um, but, you know, you would see it, you know, in restaurants as definitely one of the more premium cuts. Um, and it just really has just a tremendous flavor, like you pointed yeah. out, you know. It's a delicious, and I, I've, I've played with cooking it a lot of different ways, and it seems to come out pretty good mm-hmm. with any method, yeah. which is yeah. also nice. I'm, I haven't done it myself, but I've heard reverse sear is a, a really great way to treat the hanger steak because you can get your doneness, and then you can hit it with just an extreme level of heat. And really harden up that outside, get a nice crust. That's everything for me. I have yet to find something that isn't good reverse seared. Well, that's a good point, too. But sometimes, <laughs> I, I will say, I think sometimes it's a little bit more work than necessary. Like, sure. I don't really think it's needed for strips or ribeyes. I mean, yeah. a good hard sear. I know so you can certainly go that route and get a good result. Um, but well, there's one thing I can make at home really well, and that's steaks. And I would, I would do it with something that was a little harder to cook before I would do it with something I know that I can cook effectively with yeah. my own you know, approach. Well, in, in the barbecue world, I do a lot of smoking where I will smoke something for, you know, get a big chuck roast or something, chuck steak, and, uh, and put that in the smoker for hours, get it up to a temp, and then I'll literally just pull coals. When my friends are there, I kind of make a, a show of it. I pull the coals out of the smoker and put the cast iron on top of it and just hit them. Oh, yeah. And people love that. Yeah, that's the way to go there. And yeah, people get kind of weird about barbecuing you know they think they got to leave it there but man i'm always want to bring a cast iron skillet out and put on those coals and get it going well and i obviously have you know nothing as far as butchering knowledge compared to you but the things i know are i'm trying to play with cheaper cuts i'm trying to play with you know where brisket started as this cheaper cut that people were trying to last uh i've been messing with these cheaper roasts chuck's one of them uh there was another Steak. Shoulder clod would be a shoulder. Yeah, uh, very uh, common to barbecue joints. You know, not not a huge piece, but something at home that you know you could feed two or three people off mm-hmm. of that, but still takes a couple hours to smoke. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have any tips on things that people will find traditionally or people would find here that would be good for that besides brisket? Well, one of the harder to find, but I think fits exactly into that bill is the picanha, uh, which is the cap of the sirloin. Um, very popular cut in Brazil. In fact, I was just talking up some customers at the case about it. Um, in Brazil, they sell more picanha or sirloin cap than they do any other steak, yeah. more than they sell ribeyes or fillets or anything else. Uh, and the only way they want it is with the fat on it because that is really all the flavor. Um, even before I was hip to the picanha, I was always told that it's the fat over the rump of the animal that usually has the most flavor. So this is the absolute roundest part of the butt, basically, on the animal. Um, and it's that's a small roast. It comes in around three pounds. Um, you want it with at least half inch of fat on it, ideally, if not more. Um, there's a couple of different uh, approaches to cooking it. There is one downside to it is underneath that fat cap is a little bit of a silver, and it can be a little chewy. And, you know, American sensibility, you know, it has to melt in our mouth. Right. If we have to work at it, uh, we get so offended. But the reality is, is, is the more you chew on this, the more you get that really flavorful fat, and the, and the meat's very, very tender as well. Um, but there's a couple ways you can offset it. So two ways I would recommend cooking the picanha would be uh, you can smoke it or roast it slowly till you get to 120, pull it off, you're done, you're good to go. A uh, nice medium rib roast, slice it out. Um, but you can do this two-step method where you basically take it to about 100, uh, so you're just basically blue, um, and then go ahead and cut your culotte steaks out of it. And steaks from that are referred to as a culotte. You cut those and then go back to the grill and grill those sides that are raw, and that will give uh, just enough heat to penetrate that silver just a little bit more and make it a lot more edible. Uh, even though I would suggest if you're serving culottes to somebody, go ahead and pre-slice it and slice it nice and thin, nice and against that that, that fat, they'll get the best experience with it that way. Um, if you, 
if you were to cut it yourself or, cut, or your guest was to eat it, it's like a big, like a regular steak, and they were to bite down against that fat and against that silver flat with their teeth, they'd never get through it. And that would kind of ruin that bite a little bit. So I'm very familiar with Picanha. I'm glad you brought that up because that's mm -hmm. something, I mean, if, if anyone's it's on Instagram, <laughs> it's like anything that has Brazilian hashtags is going to be Picanha. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's almost wide to a tip, right? Correct. That's kind of how it's cut. So when you say against the grain, are you talking about, you know, most people cut it. When you're cutting those culottes, are you saying like a 90-degree turn from that? Yeah, well, it's interesting because there is basically two directions you can go with that cut. And so for me, where I'm breaking it is where that steak would be made. So if that carcass is hanging upright, I'm going to make a cut straight across that hip section parallel to the joint where the hip and the, humor and the femur connect. Um, so that's the line that I'm using. But... You can also go to the other side, opposite from the silver when it's a primal, and make cuts that way. Um, it's slightly different, but that's actually more against the grain than the way I was saying, the way I would do it. Um, so that works really, really well. Like against the grain in a good way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, it's interesting. Uh, the 90-degree rule, which is what we refer to that as, uh, applies in two ways. Either the butcher the, or the meat cutter, he cuts it that way so that you get home with it, or he also can cut it in a way that when you get home and you're cutting it for yourself, when you make that cut, you're cutting it on the 90s, if that makes sense. So it's really about like kind of understanding uh, that cut, how it's going to be utilized at the end. You know, and this is where you know being a, a butcher really is, is a little bit more. You know, it's, for sure. it's, it's one thing just to put it out and say good luck. You know, it's another thing to be like, you know, well, you need to mind this, you need to try this. Yeah, I, would, I would recommend this technique, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and which is what we really thrive on. Like every opportunity, somebody asked me that the customer that was just up there asking about the Picanha was traveling back to, uh, to California. He wanted to take something with him on Thursday, and he was just kind of looking, and I'm pretty sure he'll come back and get a couple of Picanhas tomorrow because I sold it so hard for him. And is that like a brisket where there's about two of those per cow? Or? Exactly two per, per carcass, yeah. And, it, and if you took just a whole piece... That's like three or four pounds or it's more? Roughly, depending on the animal, the overall size. You know, if you're talking a 1,100-pound carcass, it'd probably be three and a half pounds. If you're talking about a 600-pound carcass, it'd probably be two to three quarters to three. Slightly different, but they're, you know, pretty and so pieces. when you're watching these Brazilian guys, they're making these two, three-inch cuts, kind of folding it and oh, sticking yes. it on a skewer. Yeah, Shuri Shuriya style, yeah, for yeah. sure. So is that a uh, – are they – they're cutting that at that 90 degree there – and then they're kind of slicing at that same angle when they serve it, right? Yeah, typically, you know, once that's cooked, and I love that method, by the way, um, they basically will, will, will put a hole in that steak with, like, their steel and then run it onto a rod and then uh, uh, grill that off. Um, and then usually the steaks will be removed uh, and then sliced. You know, it's just a steak, and usually they'll just slice it from one end to the next. Um, but you could kind of go through it as like a, a rough pile, I suppose, and, and do a chop on it. But again, like it really does a good service to it by slicing it really well before it goes out to, to be eaten for sure. So you're saying take it off and then cut it like the skinny way. Yep. Yeah. From one, one end, one end to the next, uh, but going the, with the length, not against it. Are there methods? I, I look at meat all day. I look at Instagrams, YouTubes, everything. Are there cuts? Are there things that like the hanger steak? that people are still overlooking that you're seeing on every cow? You know, I think at this point, you know, we've had a real renaissance in, in the craft of butchery. It, I years. love it. And, I mean, I've, been, I've weathered this storm for 25 years being a butcher, and, you know, there was a, there was a point in time in my career that you really just didn't call yourself a butcher because it was full-on derogatory. Like, you were less than at that point. It was all being called a meat cutter. 
Uh, those days are over, to say the least. Um, but I think now, you know, I say my system of seam butchery, I'm, it's not unique to me. It's actually probably the most oldest and most intuitive form of, of breaking. But that method will allow you to pull each individual muscle in its entirety. Uh, it's really the most scientific way of removing things. Um, I like to uh, interject when I'm training people on it the Latin names for muscles so that they understand. Uh, you know, you can have a lot, there's a lot of common names for steaks, especially regionally across the country. I mean, there's several cuts that have dozens of different names depending on where you're at. But the, uh, the one thing you can argue with is Latin. You know, if there's a scientific name for that muscle, that is that muscle and only that muscle. And I find that is just really, for clarity's sake, really the best way to kind of understand muscles and everything. Now, do you need to know every name in Latin? No. But you can know some of the most important ones, like the longest muscle in the animal, which would be both the strip, the ribeye, and a little bit of your chuck. It's the longissimus dorsi. It's a very important muscle to know. Uh, if you know your ribeyes and you know everybody's favorite part of that would be the cap or the spinalis, yeah. again, spinalis would be the Latin for that. Um, and that just really kind of alleviates confusion when you get down to, you know, people who really know cuts. You know, it's like, oh, well, I know this is that. Uh, well, I know it is this cut. But the reality is it's, it's this in Latin, and there's no two ways about it now. I don't expect a lot of people to know Latin cuts when they come in, but there's a few cuts that I do. Uh, the petite tender, I call by its Latin terrace major. Um, I just think it's a it's that's a good a, that's a way game. cooler name. Yeah, it's a way cooler name than petite tender. Petite tender sounds yeah. like nah, I don't really want that. Um, as far as overlooked cuts, though, um, you know, I just think a lot of folks think that the only thing that's worth eating are middle meats like strips and ribeyes, fillets, um, and yes, that's definitely going to be good eating on most even even poor quality animals. Usually, you're yeah. still edible. Um, but on higher quality animals, what you'll find is that there's some cuts that come from the hindquarter or the shoulder section uh, that are actually better than you would guess. Uh, one of my favorite cuts um, out of the forequarter um, is actually the, the, the muscles off the ribs or the chuck ribs. Um, we sell it or know it as chuck flap or edge roast. Um, we call it a shop name for the steak we have is called underblade. Um, that kind of refers to it. If you look at the buyer's guide, they refer to it as underblade. But it's a really inexpensive cut very well marbled, um, and I think it's a better use of that muscle than it is for chuck ribs. Because as you know, normally when you get chuck ribs, you get one or two that are really good, and then you know, others are bone and fat. And that's always a big disappointment. I'm, I'm all about the one, two, three, A. That's a little bit one, two, three, down. A is that's, the sweet spot. That's the jam right there. That's the one you want. Yeah. But the muscle is really great, and even on poor quality beef, uh, it will usually still develop some marbling on it. Uh, so it's a really great cut, and you know, even even with my you know downtown prices uh you know it's still uh you know a 16 dollar a pound cut but it's only going to come in at eight to ten ounces so you can have a really nice dinner uh, pretty cheaply on that uh, i recommend it for like steak uh, salad or, or steak and eggs for a brunch or something like that uh, but it works great for for you know just eating too oh i mean and even if you pay 50 dollars for a steak here you're getting a steak that a restaurant would charge 100 for you know absolutely so yeah. it, it, I, I don't really worry about the price of anything because with your season hand I mean, I've seen a few of the other butchers in there and how well they work. It's weird because it makes me feel like other, when you're at a store, you're at a Whole Foods, that almost, those, those aren't really butchers. Like, I know that they're still doing things, but like, Where's the picanha? Are they grinding it? Where, where is that disappearing to everywhere? Well, it, it's box programs usually that, that a lot of that stuff doesn't happen. Um, you know, I, I don't disparage any other person in the trade. For sure. Uh, yeah, I, I don't want to do that. All the guys at Whole Foods and H-E-B and, and all the H-E-B, Randall's and everything around here. H-E-B does a really – I've had to get some last-minute stuff, and they have, like, full-on, like, turn machines back on for me. So yeah. I know that H-E-B is – they have some real deal there. Yeah, they've been around a long time, and they've done a lot for, for the industry. I will say that, that – those big boxes and grocery stores have kind of killed the little small butcher shops 
you know, around the of corners course. just because, you know, everybody wants that convenience factor. Yeah. Um, one thing that I think separates us from those places is that typically in a grocery store, you know, you're, you're shooting for goals financially, and that can be very challenging. So you, you can't have cuts in there that are lost leaders or require a lot of trimming. Uh, the or pecan, explanation. Or explanation. You know, they need to be an easy sell. Middle meats, obviously, ground meats, stuff like that. But the picanha, like, I, like we've been talking about, to use that as an as another example, is like that, that requires selling. Like you have to really sell it like a used car salesman. You yeah. got to kick the tires. You got to tell them what to expect. You got to find the guy that's willing to do a little bit of work exactly. for a good flavor. Um, but I would say typically they have to work with specs. And, you know, uh, a chain especially – uh, they're going to have done all their costing information way upstream. Uh, they're not going to rely on each individual location to to do too much of their price setting without having some oversight, to say the least. Um, and if they're looking at a full-cut sirloin, they're going to really wonder how the rest of that's going to sell if they take the picanha off of it. Because even as a full-cut sirloin, the cap is what I want to eat. Like, I yeah, don't want any sure. of the rest of that sirloin. I just want that cap. Um, but if they remove it, they know that the remaining part of the butt there is going to have – it's going to be less attractive. Um, now, you can go in there and remove, again, like the, the sirloin is made up of about five muscles. Uh, they all want to be cooked in a different way and a different temperature and to a different degree of doneness. Um, if you go through it, you can separate and remove out of the sirloin the picanha, what's called the cat's tongue. There's the mouse muscle. Uh, then you get into a filet side, which actually looks a lot like a, like a filet mignon. Like tenderloin. Cut, right? um, a little coarser grain, not quite as tender, but a lot more flavor. And then you have another side that can have a little bit more connective tissue in it because that's just something that sirloins have. Uh, we sell it as a center sirloin, but it's really the, the larger half of the sirloin butt. Um, and that's merchandising, you know, and that's, that's one thing the scene butchery lends itself to is greater merchandising. And that's, as I was taught by old men, is like, the more cuts you can make out of one thing, the better. So I can buy a top butt, I can make full cut steaks, or I can make five different steaks out of that. And, and, and at different price points with a variable margin, you can just make more money that way. So are they getting, that's my question is, are all these big stores, are all these other butchers getting those cuts and they're just cutting them different? If they can sell them, they bring them in. Um, and if they're selling them, then they're probably not going to change their spec on them. Um, the, the downside to the picanha is that few processors do that, like for, fully remove those caps. And when they do, they take the fat off. And this has been something that has plagued me for years in buying. Um, I was like, I, I want this cut, but i got to have the fat on it. If, if a Brazilian comes in, and they know I've got picanha, because they do now. They come yeah. in, they want to know. Because you can't find it, it anywhere. You can't find it. And, and I've had times where they, they've sent me the, the fatless ones, and I'll bring it out and show them, and they just shake their heads and goes, I know that's the right thing, They're but it's like, got to have the fat. This is some gringo bullshit, yeah, bro. Yeah, exactly. So this white boy brought me something messed up here. <laughs> but, you know, they understand, too. And they come back, and we have it. Um, uh, I tell you what, I've got a few guys really hooked on the Akiyushi ones I bring in that just are marbled, like unbelievable. Uh, well, because it's generally not that marbled of a cut. You kind of rely on that fat yeah. cap. Oh, these that come in, they're high prime. You know, they just look wow. gorgeous. Do you, uh, as far as cooking steaks, as far as all that, do you see the price fluctuations as far as, you know, people obviously are going for ribeyes, they're going for tenderloins, they're going for... Uh, those more expensive cuts, but are you seeing it shift? You know, I, I've noticed the the price for beef cheek has gone up a little bit because that's be, people are understanding yeah. that that's something. Well, the classic tale to that would be the skirt steak. You know, a cut that used to be almost the cheapest thing you could buy is now something that even uh, in a place that is budget minded is still twenty dollars a pound, um, and that's because of the demand on it. You know, and that's what that's the balance there is that you're only going to get 
two, maybe maybe four pounds of skirts, both outside and inside, off of the entire carcass. So right there, you have an economic factor of scarcity that you're just not going to get that many. Um, and if you you know process a lot of animals, yes, you can generate some, um, but it's been the demand for that cut that has really drove the price up on that. Um, but yeah, to your question though, I would I would say this is true. A lot of people are more adventurous. They want to try something that's a little different. Um, that just ribeyes and strips and fillet, uh, even though I sell a lot of that stuff. I think right now I'm selling more uh, buffet than any of those three cuts. Uh, and I think a second runner-up to that is probably the, um, the culottes um, because we have them and nobody else does. So we put them out whole. Sometimes we cut steaks out of it. We have it on our menu as well. And we just sell so many of them. It's just as many as I can get in pretty much. So skirt steak. Is that something you would generally cook hot and fast? That kind of seems like a lot of people are using that on the grill. Yeah. A lot of people are maybe marinating a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, do you think it needs that little bit of breakdown of some marinade? Um, you know, again, this would be a quality uh, check for sure. Um, on anything less than a choice, marinating would be highly recommended on skirts. Um, inside especially. The inside is typically broader. Um, it can sometimes be a little bit thinner, but it's usually a little tougher, a little less tender. Um, I would always recommend something enzymatic or acid. Uh, if not a jacar, you know, the mechanical tenderizer that you can just kind of use. Okay. Those are great to have at home uh, for a lot of cuts. They don't do a lot of damage to the cut, but they kind of break up the fibers a little bit. Um, work really well. Now, the outside skirt is another monster altogether. The outside skirt really doesn't need a whole lot. Um, uh, hot and How fast do you know cook. if you have an inside or an outside? Well, the inside is usually, or sorry, the outside is usually a little thicker, uh, and it's always a little narrower. It's usually about three inches wide. Um, you just at least, so it's like, you know, the inside skirt's a good twice as wide as the outside is um, depending on how they're cut and clean you know they can kind of they can kind of fake that a little bit too, make it look like an outside skirt but traditionally the outside skirt would be the most desirable of the two so you um, want the skinnier one you want the skinnier one now here's the rub is that's hard to find most of, of what you find in stores are, are the inside skirt I would say I don't know if I've ever seen a skirt stick that skinny yeah um, most of them will go to steakhouses or, or restaurants that feature you know fajita and stuff like that um, and never make it to a retailer, you know, and it, that's also true for the for the hanger steak as well. Uh, most most hangers, because you only get one per carcass, are going yes. right to restaurants, you know. So if you're processing 40 head a week, well, that's only 40 servings, and you know, I mean, we could go through that in two nights here, yeah. You know, and that's a busy program, you know. Is the brisket the biggest cut that comes off of a cow now? Um, I, yeah, I would say that's, that's pretty accurate. There's a few things that you can cut that are larger, um, but boy, you really have to know your butcher on these. Um, one is actually what's known as the Jurassic cut. Um, and I actually don't know how to make this cut. This is a cut that came about in the UK about five years ago. Um, it honestly, to me, looks a lot like a bavette. Um, I've, I've seen a picture of it cooked, but they won't show, they won't give you the secrets. They won't tell you what it is. Um, but they say it's a seven to eight pound roast. So it's not quite as big as a brisket, but it's pretty large. Um, you can Google it as best I can say, and you can kind of see it. And the one photo that I've seen, I've got one that's fanned out on a tray, and it just looks like sirloin flap to me. And I don't know if they're leaving something else on it, but there's that. Is but, that something I've seen, like some European roast where they roll things up and stuff like um, that? This one isn't rolled, but it's definitely a U.K. cut. Um, you know, they, the U.K. approaches meat a lot differently than we do, as most they of the world They eat a lot does. less, too. They eat a lot less, um, and they're very creative um, with, with what they can do. Um, and this, I think, was a, a national competition they had with all the shops trying to find out a, a new cut and a new way to merchandise it. Um, so I think it's, they said it's, the, the, the confusing part is they said it's from the hind quarter, um, but I, I don't know if that's entirely accurate or not. 
Um, the other big cut, and this is one that, again, like you need to know a butcher to pull this, but, and I'm going to use a little Latin here on this, but is the serratus ventralis. And it is the entirety of what we've talked about already as the edge roast or the chuck flap, as well as the bulk of the Denver roast, which is another very popular cut out of the chuck. Uh, now, this is a chuck roll that has been completely separated, so you have a, a chuck eye section um, that's much smaller than what you'd see in a grocery store. Um, and then there's this larger, thicker part um, that would be on the other side of the scapula or the shoulder blade. Um, the Denver roast is very popular right now, but it's usually a little smaller. So if you can pull the whole carcass and you break the way I do, it gives you this serratus ventralis in its entirety. Um, and it weighs complete probably about seven or eight pounds, depending on the animal. Um, one of my last competitions with the WBC, we pulled that out as what we call the California steak. Because the first couple of times I pulled it and put it on the table, I'd be damned if it didn't just look like California. You know, it had the same look. It was, it just, it worked out. I, even in the competition, it didn't come out that way. Uh, but we stuck with it nonetheless. But I've actually been wanting to take one myself and smoking it whole and complete because uh, I think it would be dynamite. It's uh, very well marbled typically. It's got a coarse muscle structure that all run in a kind of similar direction. Um, but I think it would be a really great cut to feature, you know, down the road. And obviously the listeners are all about Texas barbecue. We, you know, brisket is king. Do you have any tips on butchering briskets, what to look for? Uh, you know, I, we've, all been, we, we, we've all been hurt by the quote-unquote butchered or, uh, you know, like messed up kind of slashed briskets that you sure. find in the store because they were just not careful. Yeah, it's unfortunate, and, and I get them sometimes too. Uh, you know, that's another cut that, like you said, is very popular here, so I have to bring in an extra uh, cases in order to keep up with, and it's very frustrating when I see them slashed up. Um, there's really not a whole lot you can do about it on the consumer end. Um, sometimes if it's like a, if it's a flap or it's like a fray that's kind of lifted up, I would recommend just removing that so that you don't have like a little valley there. Uh, cause it's just going to look bad when you, when you cut, yeah, you want it to be more too uniform. much seasoning. Yeah, and... exactly. It just, it causes problems. So you can trim that down. Um, but boy, I tell you, I see a lot of videos of tr people trimming briskets and most of the time it's okay. But every now and again, it's kind of cringeworthy. Uh, a couple of things I would say is that you want to be sure, sure you remove that deckle knob. And you want to be sure that you remove the keel line. The keel line is that really tough tissue on the outside that basically as the pectorals come together, it's the tissue that connects it to the sternum. Um, that is an outer line that's usually pretty very visible. Um, it's usually the edge that has um, some discoloration from being on the carcass or drying. Um, but you that's can usually, a fat edge or the thin edge? Uh, it'd be the fat edge. So gotcha. not from the internal part of the cavity, but, but more towards the outside. And I'll usually just come and make that all in one cut and just trim it up and square it very nicely, and if not even bevel into the fat on the bottom. That's a, the beveling is a bit of a merchandising trick to make it look like it doesn't have that much fat with just trimming it you know, at an angle right towards the edge. Um, but one thing about trimming that's really important is if you're trying to take fat off of the flat section, the middle of the flat section, is you always want to cut with the grain. If you're going against the grain or over the grain, that grain is going to roll on you basically and you're not going to get leverage on it and you'll get a, you'll get a dippy kind of cut. You want to turn that brisket and push against those fibers and you'll get a much cleaner trim on it and, and, and I, I can see the difference when I do it uh, and I think if I was to smoke those the ones that would smoke best would be the ones that were trimmed a little you're saying cleaner. cut it long ways yeah with the grain I put like use that muscle fiber to create tension this is everything in butchery and as you push the, the fibers aren't moving laterally they're only 
they're actually doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're elongating, and then they'll get tight, and they won't go anymore, and you can just push with that grain. And, so, and you want it to be cold when you're trimming it, too. As cold as possible, for yeah. sure. And that's not always possible. Yeah. Uh, you know, actually, a few people know this. I actually spent, oh, about a year at a commercial barbecue place uh, in Waco, Texas, where we actually sold all the barbecue to a PX in Fort Hood. And we had this really cool pit that we smoked on that this uh, guy who ran the company had built out of circus parts. So they're big carnival cogs and big That's chain gears. I believe that it had 16 platforms, uh, eight, six feet long. We could get about 10 briskets per, per slat, and he had 16 of those. So we'd unload a 16-foot trailer and load it up and be smoking and be packaging uh, you know, towards the end of the week. But anyways, we would pull those off hot and, bone and, and, and trim the fat off once they're hot. Uh, we would take all the fat off there. We would basically either do sliced, which would have a little bit of fat on it, or chopped brisket that we just do in little quarts or whatever. It's into that PX. Um, but boy, I trimmed a lot of briskets. And we'd have to pre-trim them first, and then we trimmed them after they came off. But, yeah, that's where I got all my technique for barbecue brisket for sure. And obviously you need a sharp knife. Always. Uh, and do you have a preferred method? Is there like a butcher's way of sharpening a knife that's different? I've been on, on the pilgrimage of learning to get knife sharp, so... It's been fun learning, you know, I have a stone, I have a strop, I have a bunch of stuff. Yeah, well, there is definitely a lot of techniques uh, to be used. Uh, when I first started, we just used an oil tristone, which is an absolutely, totally effective method. Um, it's three grains? It's three different, coarse, medium, and fine. You know, it's, it's about that simple. Um, the downside to oil stones that I've found is they're really messy. Once you do your sharpening, you know, you're going to get oil on you, you're going to have metal uh, shavings on your handle, your knife, everywhere you have to clean up. That's, uh, that's just kind of messy. Um, I started having some elbow problems, some lateral epicondyl issues um, about 10 years ago. And one of the things that I realized I needed to do is I need to keep my knives sharper. And as I did, I realized, okay, well, there's a better method, water stones. Um, right off the top of the bat, they're a lot cleaner. Um, you also have a lot more granular uh, separation in grits. You can start with a 300, which would be very coarse. In fact, this is what I do. I do a 300 to bevel. Uh, a 1,000 to correct any angles, and then I bump up to a 2 and a 5,000 to finish, uh, to get that mirror finish on my edges, basically. Um, and I basically, you know, a lot of folks will go back and forth with their knives. I actually go a uh, long ways away from my body, basically. Uh, and I've got to be a, this will be a whole separate interview talking about knife starting to explain how I do it. For but, sure. Um, I really like uh, the water stones. They work a lot more effectively. And the strop is something I actually started using about a year ago. Uh, not really realizing what a benefit it would have to uh, a small bevel boning knife or even a other knife. But um, I picked up one, got the compound uh, stuff to do on it, and wow. I mean, it made a, such a significant difference in my sharpening. Uh, but I would say that I can't. It's hard to just, you really need to go through all your grits to get up to that strop rather than just kind of touching up. And if you're just touching up, you really just need to hit that two or 5,000, uh, and that should be good. But, you know, the, spend all that time on the stropping. You want to know that everything's good to go, your angles are all correct and everything. Um, and that being a, the biggest part of it is make sure angles are right. Is there a name for that holster that butchers have, that metal holster that holds scabbard. your knives? It's a scabbard. A scabbard, yeah. That's a great name. Yeah. Um, the ones I like are made by Victronox. They're aluminum. They're very inexpensive. They're not very durable, but because they're inexpensive, uh, they're, they're a better bet. Um, there's a couple other brands that are out there. I just don't find them as comfortable as the Victronox, and I've been working with that one for 20-plus years now. Um, it's, uh, it doesn't hold every knife very well, but because it's aluminum, you can usually kind of conform it to your will a little bit and make yeah. it hold your bigger handled knives and stuff like that. So one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is you guys are ramping up for next year's uh, World Butcher's Challenge. Yes. That's the hat you got on. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and I want to hear more about this because this is something I probably want to attend as well as, you know, 
cheer you guys on for yeah, it. Yeah, well, I think everybody should attend. If you've got any interest in butchery in the least, uh, this would be basically the Olympics of butchery. Um, the World Butcher Challenge started about 2008 in Australia, uh, basically a competition between Australianers and New Zealanders, uh, and the bet was a bottle of whiskey. You know, and if I can't think of a, a better way to start a competition, that, that's it. Uh, it started off pretty slowly with just Australia and a couple other countries, but over the last uh, about four or five years, um, they've really been starting including a lot more English-speaking countries as well as other countries around the world. Um, so it's, it's held every two years. Um, so I first really became aware of it in 16. Um, it was the first year that they added France into the competition as well as Great Britain, I believe, and maybe one other team. Where did it originate? Uh, the competition in Australia. Okay. Yeah, and, and they have been dominant in the competition, them and New Zealanders, for years. They go hard uh, with their beef. Yeah, Australians do not play when it comes to butchery. If there's, if there's a culture that's as serious as Brazil, it's Australia. And, they, are, and they, they honestly put Americans to shame with their intensity for their appreciation of cr their craft and everything. Not to say that we don't do a good job of it here, but it's a, it's a whole other level of uh, fervor when you get involved in a butcher comp uh, competition or even conversation with someone from Australia. Um, but the competition uh, kind of has grown into um, quite the international melting pot of, of competitors. Um, there are six-man teams. Um, we competed officially uh, in 2018. We were the first American team to ever compete. Uh, we placed in the middle of the pack, six overall, but first out of new teams. Um, we, we went into the competition not really knowing what to expect. Um, up until 18, they were very secretive about letting videos out of the competition to give too much away, to give advantages to future competitions. Um, I won't say there's trade secrets involved, but there's a lot of proprietary cuts that are being done. Uh, one, of the, one of the big impetus for the competition is actually innovation. Um, you know, you were actually mentioning it earlier. It's like, what are the cuts people are missing? Or, or what are the preparation that people are missing? Or what are, what are other ways that we can be cooking this? That's a lot of what this competition is about, is about taking things uh, and doing stuff that's revolutionary to it. And... Uh, you know, one thing that we did is, like, I, I love standing shank roast. I like to French the bone on the end. It looks really awesome. Well, we did that, but instead of leaving the bone in, we put a leak in the middle of it. And we did it so good that these master veteran butchers did not realize what it was until after the fact. Uh, there was a book made afterwards with all of the team's uh, recipes, or with some of them, and they put the, 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 that cut in the book, and they didn't realize it until post-production on the book. We, they called it to ask us about it, and they were like, this stuff with a leak, and they're like, we didn't know that. We actually missed the signage on that, so they didn't realize it during the competition. Uh, we had we had some we had some hurdles in the competition. You know, we did really good, but uh, uh, we've we learned a lot from that competition. And so the next one is in 2020, uh, August. Uh, what did I say? 23rd, August 23rd. Yeah. Um, we are just now getting into our serious phasing of practices. Uh, we'd go about every other month out to Sacramento. That's where a majority of the the, the team is is uh, out on the West Coast. Um, but starting next year, we'll be practicing every month uh, for this competition. And, and we, this is the only team in America? Yeah. Um, wow. So we secured um, that right uh, through the Butchers Guild, uh, which is an organization based out of the Bay Area uh, that is a, a collective of butchers and chefs that are like-minded to myself. Uh, it's a great group to get involved with. You can uh, check out my website or my Instagram page to find out a link for that. Um, we do a lot of informational videos, uh, very great source for networking. In fact, when I first got involved with the Guild, oh, eight years ago or so, like one of the main original benefits I had was just pure networking, you know, like quickly I knew every butcher in the country, you know, and had conversations, you know, with people that just would never rub elbows with any other way. Uh, and that's that's been really 
huge for the trade, you know, and that's not just the Butcher's Guild that's done that. It's been social media in, in its entirety. Um, there's just a level of exposure that we've just never had before um, trade-wise. And I think, you know, we're all, all appreciating that, you know, all the countries that are involved. Um, we really want to bring – so this will be the first year that uh, the United States has obviously hosted this competition, but we're also pushing really hard to have it here indefinitely so every two years it'd be held in sacramento so we're actually holding it at the arena one center where the sacramento kings play wow. um the president of the sacramento kings is a huge fan of taylor's meat market my my team captain um i would butcher his name if i try to pronounce it now but he was a big baller in the, in the uh, 80s and i'm sure everybody who's listening probably is going oh it's so and so i i would butcher his name and I'll, I'll i'll save myself the embarrassment of that one no but, problem um it's been a a, a, a lot of fun doing and being involved in this competition um, you know, we do a lot for fundraising. In fact, that's probably the hardest part of it. You know, we're all very seasoned uh, cutters. Uh, and just to explain it just a little bit more to back up, uh, it's, it's six-man teams, and what our job to do is break down a side of beef, a side of pork, a whole lamb, and five chickens in three hours and 15 minutes. And one thing that is really not – well, wasn't apparent to us when we first started was uh, they are judging us not just on our cuts, but they're judging us on our, our cleanliness, our, our uniforms when we start, our uniforms when we're done as to, like, how much – blood we got on us, how messy we were, uh, how clean our, our stations were, how we cleaned up. So we have to clean up in that three-hour and 15-minute window. And I don't mean just, like, get things off the block. Yeah. We have to scrape, sanitize yeah, it swan, as, yeah, as yeah. if it was in the shop, you know. Uh, and they're judging us on that. In fact, they dinged us because we kicked over a bucket of sandy water in, in Ireland in our first competition. We're like, man, really? And it was well, it was it was it was it was tough. <laughs> so you're, you have to do this breakdown, but are you also doing a certain amount of Innovate or creation of a Absolutely. dish? Absolutely, yeah. Um, I mean, as far as a dish, not necessarily. Um, in fact, what we did in the first competition in 18 was really feature utilization was really our theme. Um, we, you know, using scene butchery, obviously, is, is key to that. Um, but we produced less waste than any other team there. In fact, we didn't really fully understand the rules, and the way we read the rules were anything left – you were deducted for. Well, the way the rule actually read was anything left on the block was you were judged against. So we watched other teams take armloads of trim and just throw them into the waste bucket, which for me is sacrilege. Like you right. just don't. You're not going to make money in a shop that way. Um, but I won't name any names, but there were well, several teams. you're actually teams a butcher. Some of these guys might not necessarily – or they're – they're so famous for what they do, they don't have to worry about wasting. Well, I think, I think what they realized is they knew the rules a little bit better than we did, and they knew what they could get away with and what they couldn't. But that said, uh, at the end of the competition, as we're kind of putting everything together, we produced we did a, we did a dog food blend, basically, in order to utilize all of our scraps, all of our discolored meats, all that kind of stuff, um, which is a totally viable way of doing things. Um, so that's where a majority of our really scrappy stuff, our softest fats, all that kind of stuff went to. Um, other teams obviously didn't do that. But that said, when we were done, end of the day, we produced three office waste baskets full of trash out of all of that carcass. Wow. You know, not, not much. Excluding bone, obviously, but just fat. And that's out of you know, X amount of pounds there. Uh, it really impressed the judges. It especially impressed um, the uh, founder of this event. Um, oh, why am I spacing on his name right now? Um, it's a hard day for names. It's a hard day for names. I'm sorry. Um, no worries. He said, you know, we may have to change the rules because of this, because this is really what we want to see. We don't want to see people reading the rules and, you know, yeah. leveraging it. Yeah. Trying to find way. the loopholes. Exactly. And so the thing you, you said you put a leak in, was that cooked or was that just butchered? 
Um, you know, it wasn't cooked. Uh, so one of the rules is each of the there's a drawing of each of the captains. Uh, they pick another team, and they get to at the end of the competition go to their table and pick one item to be cooked to be vetted to see if it works. We have to not only do we have to know each each competitor on the team has to know every prep cut, even if you're not doing it because it's hard to do every single cut. We kind of you know divide and conquer on that. Um, but we have to know. So the judges can ask us at any point, hey, what is so-and-so doing with this lifter mean off this rib roll or whatever? We have to know, even if that's not our, our cut that we're working on, per se. Um, but we also have the signage on our signs and everything. So the rule is that it has to be a cut. They can pick any cut as long as it can be cut, cooked in under 45 minutes. So that actually kind of gives us a way to like deliberately make something too big to cut. And we can kind of work that way. But if it's anything that can be cooked under 45 minutes, you better expect it to be vetted and tested and get called out on it. Um, you know, so that's one thing that we look at. So lots of things like a lot of the chicken cuts can get tested. You know, we did like a, we did a chicken cigar. We took the skin and ground a, a chicken farce sausage, basically, and rolled it in that skin and made basically a chicken cigar, as it's called. Um, Why don't you make that here? <laughs> if I could get enough uh, ground chicken, I probably would. I sell it too fast. But... Um, We've done it on the menu, you know. You know, it's definitely not that something we were unfamiliar incredible. with. Yeah, yeah. If you can get the skin nice and crispy, it's it's pretty good. It's kind of like a like a meaty taquito or something yeah. like that. It's kind of ridiculous. Well, I play with chicken skin all the time, yeah. so I'm I'm actually at at home myself. I'm trying to create something around yakitori, but mm -hmm. it's such a it's such a dialed and it, it's such a specific way of doing things. And sure. every YouTube video, the best ones, they like cut. So it's like they show them cut the chicken up, and then all of a sudden it's on a skewer, and you're you like, wait a second. That. I want that detail. Like, how did you fold the skin like that? How did you? And uh, so, but there's also versions of yakitori where you just lay the skin out, and you, you just you put the pieces on a grill. You don't have to put them on skewers. Uh -huh. So I've been defaulting to that since it's a lot well, easier. Just so you know, I can buy skin in bulk. So if you need any chicken skin, I can get you covered on I, that. Every time I come here, I fall in love with this place <laughs> for a different reason. And your staff's cool. Vince is always, Thanks, man, yeah. you know, he, he's He's so excited to see me, and I left a chicken heart on the counter the last time I was here, and he remembered and, uh, you know, helped me find another one in the freezer. Like, it's just, it's cool because even though we're probably still a minority, there's a lot of us looking for these things. There's a lot of us, like, I want to just cook my lady some lamb heart. Yeah. I think it'll be healthy for us. I think that it's something that we, I like to throw something in, you know, not everything has to be super sweet or super uh you know fatty like not everything has to be cooked in butter but it, it helps mm -hmm. and so it's cool to to come in here and have a, a much wider range of choices than just you know uh t-bones sirloins etc cetera, etc cetera. Yeah. well i mean that's something we thrive on is we, we really want people to ask questions uh, i think that's something that unfortunately consumers have been trained against you know um you know, as I said earlier, is like every time we have a question at the case, it's an opportunity for us to really explain more of what makes us different. Um, and if it's scarcity because we're working carcass or if it's we buy the best beef in Texas or whatever it might be, what makes it different uh, is really, really critical. And, you know, it's, it's tough. You know, we, we face turnover like any other restaurant or, or business. Um, and keeping people trained up on this stuff is tough. It's like, yeah, I can stand out there all day, but I usually have stuff I need to do too. Um, but I'm always available to my customers uh, either via email. Um, I do consulting for professionals if they, uh, you know, want to, you know, add a butchery component to the restaurant or if they want to open a butcher shop. I'm talking to a lady in California right now. And uh, so I stay busy, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I just, I just really want to share what I do know. Uh, I got a lot more years to learn a lot more, but sure. at, at this point now, um, I, I'm, 
I'm happy to give people any advice I can uh, to help them improve either their quality of life or what they eat. Um, you know, it was your, what you were saying really rang true for me. You know, I was at a food co-op in here, Wheatsville Food Co-op, for about six years. Uh, and during my tenure there, I, I was faced really quickly with a lot of people who were just now getting into the omnivore's dilemma and Michael Pollan and locavore in this movement. So I was getting questions that I never gotten before, like where was this animal raised and what was this animal fed? And, you know, people really haven't cared about those things in a very long time. Um, and I was caught short, you know, I realized quickly, it's like, look, if I need, if I want to be this neighborhood butcher, uh, where people, you know, want to come in, they trust you to source responsibly and to feed their family, right, I need to go do some more homework, you know, and I quickly did, uh, brushed up on things I knew, I, I quickly found some sources of uh, natural pork that was raised locally, as well as beef, and brought them in, uh, and this was before the trend really started, you know, um, you know, I left that place in 08, and luckily met my partner, and he had a very similar uh, like-minded approach to, to sourcing and everything. Uh, he, he knew stuff that I didn't know uh, about curing meat um, and making uh, charcuterie. Um, so that worked out really, really well there. Uh, and my strong retail component only made sense that down the road, instead of just doing a restaurant or a charcuterie place, that we did a full-on retail butcher shop. And uh, it was a struggle at first, but now, I mean, I'm right where I want to be. I want people to trust us when they come in. I want them to know that we're going to source as responsibility, responsible as we can. We're going to price as appropriately as we can. You know, I mean, we have, we have a lot of overheads, you know. You know, even though our prices are a little higher, I mean, the reality is, is a good percentage of every dollar it comes in goes right back to the business, and there's very, very little left over at the end of the day. I mean, in fact, traditionally, butcher shops, they don't make a lot of money. You know, we, we do good to uh, break even all year round to turn a profit during the holidays, and we do that cycle year after year after year. Uh, we're on right now one of our better years that we, since we've been open here. Awesome. And I'm, I can be happier about that, and it's been just a lot of hard work. You know, even with faced with a bunch of tur uh, turnover, uh, it's just been, I've had to be in the back a little bit more and maybe that's helped our profitability some, but, uh, you know, I try to train as fast as I can. Um, but it's a challenge, you know, it takes a special kind of person to stand in that cold room and cut meat all day. Well, and we're near Texas A&M and these universities that are churning out, you know, meat science and butchering mm -hmm. is there, are most of those people going to more of a factory? Is it hard to find classically trained butchers? Are less people doing that? Yeah. You know, I, I don't know, in fact, I personally don't know a butcher who actually went through a formal four-year college for an animal science degree. Uh, I think in most cases, those degrees are used for other things, uh, veterinarian uh, equivalency really? uh, to get going in, because it, it typically doesn't... Even grading beef and all that stuff? Yeah, I mean, you know, these are just things that you need to, you know, you need to learn. Like, I, I, ironically enough, I learned a lot of that stuff when I was in high school. We had a very strong FFA program, so we did, we had meat judging, we had breed judging, um, milk judging, you know, all the, <laughs> I always laugh so I think about the Napoleon Dynamite milk judging where they're like, oh, this one, you know, was in the onion patch or yeah. this one has bleach. But in that's it. really that's true. Ex that's exactly true. That's exactly what we did. Um, but we did, we also would look at uh, scorecards for beef. We would look at beef on a table and we would allow to use our cards, which is exactly what a USDA inspector would do when he's grading beef. Um, so we got, I got a firsthand knowledge of that. And then what I was able to learn uh, when it came to, uh, well, not only husbandry, but, but animals, breeds, breed differences, confirmation, all these things that you look at. Because, uh, you know, what most folks don't really understand is that a butcher should be able to literally walk out into a pasture and pick out the best beef on that lot at any one given time by what he knows. And you can tell that by confirmation, by how you see ribs, how you see muscle definition, where you see all that. Tap on them. Yeah, well, I think, yeah, because I think getting ripe, you know. <laughs> um, and if you can't really do that, then, you know, how can you, how, down the road eventually, 
that quality is going to be in question. And, it, you know, it's, it's just different. You know, like I said, you know, in the rest of the world, this is how beef is picked. You know, you, you literally will pick the best beef to put in your shop in a small scale. Uh, the bigger you get, you wind up in, you know, huge warehouses of beef, and they just ship out whatever they get. Do you feel like you're helping people also see the whole animal by doing this? Because, one, you just see it when you walk in. Yes. And, two... You're, you, you can give people a map. You can show people, you know, when you go to the grocery store, it's so far from where it started. You don't necessarily see, oh, there's a bunch of ribeyes. There's all, you, you, you're used to seeing the stuff. But here it's nice because you, you can almost take someone in the back if you wanted and they mm -hmm. had the right timing to say, hey, he's cutting that cut right now and here's where it is. And Yeah, I mean, that's one of my most favorite things to do is if I'm out of something and I've had to do it more than a few times, um, well, I could just roll out a hind quarter or four quarter and do a couple of quick breaks and pull these cuts off for people right away. They're usually minds are blown at that point. Um, also, when I do classes for people or demos, you know, lots of times just breaking down a side of pork, people don't realize that you get all of that out of a side. Yeah. You know, like they just think it's all pork chops or shoulder butts or whatever. Um, that's one of my most, that's one of my best feelings I get is when I can really explain to people like all of this is usable like you know there's little assholes and elbow things like there's i mean there's no asshole it's gone there is some elbows but that's, that's and they're like probably tasty if you cook them right tasty, you know that's your hawk meat that's what you season your beans and greens and collards with you know i mean come on you know that's good stuff um but you know that's one of my favorite things to do and yes you know we we have a, a clear uh wall in our cutting room so when you walk into my shop if you're walking right to my meat case, the first thing you're going to see is the back part. Um, and it's wide open. We do all of our breaking right there. We break from the rail, uh, which is, you, in fact, you don't even see that if you don't go to a processor. Most, most breaks are done on the table, which is a completely fine way of doing it. And I did it for years, but my back doesn't like it anymore. And now that I can stand up and do it, it's actually given me years. So you're actually, like, disassembling it while it's hanging. Exactly. A disassembly is a good, good way to describe it because it's actually, we got... John Armour, who basically invented the assembly line for, for pork production, got the idea from Henry Ford in the assembly of, nice. of the car. He said, if a car can be put together that way, a cow or pig could be taken apart that way. And it's a systematic approach to removing everything. Not one person doing every task, but it going down a conveyor belt. And each you have one job, and it may be one cut, and you have to do it on every one of them. But that speeds up efficiency, and basically the industrialization of butchery happened. And so when you're doing these classes, are you bringing people right in here and they're breaking down cuts? Are you, is it more for like a home person or a restaurant? You know, it's, it's for whoever wants to come in and take it. We do a one-on-one -on -one class, which is just, uh, we break, I demo a half hog. Uh, I let them usually cut some chops themselves um, and take home. Uh, we do a hands-on class, um, which will either be uh, pork shoulders or hams and sometimes a rack uh, to clean up. But um, I'm just about to start offering a master's class where you basically buy a half hog uh, and I butcher it with you or help you with it, but basically you'll be doing the work as I, as I instruct you. Um, and I think this is going to be a really good class for professionals. Sounds fun. Uh, you know, or amateurs or, or anybody who just wants to, to do it. I mean, even if you don't know what you're doing, I'm not going to let you hurt yourself. I'm not going to let you ruin something, at least short of a, a slash or a smaller cut or yeah. something, you know. Uh, I always tell them you've got to eat your mistakes. You know, it'll still eat. Trust me, it'll still eat. Um, but, you know, I, and we do, we've taken kind of a hiatus uh, over the summer, but um, I typically offer, you know, two to three classes a month, uh, which keeps me busy. Um, uh, sometimes I have other staff doing it, uh, but right now it's pretty much just me doing them. Um, yeah, they're a lot of fun. Do you, do you have a general 
sense of who's taking the classes? Is it kind of a range of people? You know, if I said mostly, it's hunters. Um, you know, I always do introductions. I always like to know people's names. I always like to know why they're here. Like, what do they want to take away from this? I yeah. think that's important for anybody, you know, whatever their job is. Um, and if it's hunters, you know, I want them to be able to go out to the field get their kill and bring back more meat you know i don't want them to have to leave that meat in the field but if you're trying to carry or pack everything out bone in like it's it's heavy and it's, heavy. it's not realistic you know um, but just pulling back straps is wasteful you know and I, so i like to show them you know or at least give them an idea of like here's some cuts that you should really try to get out of here uh, there's some stuff that you can leave you know especially on like boars or some cuts that just aren't going to be all that great uh, but i can definitely tell you how to get the best stuff out of it would you would you teach someone a way to get rid of the bones so they can carry more meat or just to get specific cuts? Well, just my method alone basically is deboning uh, for the most part. Okay. So, you know, as long as they watch, they kind of get the idea. Again, it comes down to, you know, to really understand skeletal structure and muscle anatomy and all that. Um, and that's hard to teach in a two-hour class. For know? sure. Um, but, but you, you can know, get a good sense in two if hours. If you hunt all the time, you know, repetition is, is our master in this craft. So if you hunt all the time and you get a chance to break one down every time, just try to do as much as you can as much time as you have to get that done with and just try to do better every time you're, you're at it. Uh, you know, just try not to waste it, you know, like, you know, that animal is worth eating, you know, yeah. you killed it, so you might as well eat it. Do you, uh, do you promote preserving the offal as much as they can too? Oh, for sure. I mean, it's just as important That's some as the of the rest. best parts. Yeah, I mean, That's no. where the lions go first. Exactly. You know, uh, I mean, liver's great, uh, especially for charcuterie, um, but hearts, highly underrated. You know, um, I, we do them, um, we've done everything from like stuffed heart dishes um, but what I like is I like using it in sausage. Um, it's got a great texture. It has a great flavor. It's a good lean component to work in the sausages. Um, and price point wise, it's a great way to add something into your sausage. So right now we do our hot link or our version of a hot gut um, that's made with uh, pork hearts. Yeah. yeah. I've seen a few places in Austin that put uh, hearts into their sausage. Yeah, I mean, it's economically, it's a smart way to do it. It's also, you know, it's something that a lot of farmers will be long on. Like, you know, this is the other thing is, you know, you if you're just selling the high-value stuff, you're always going to be stuck with the things that are less sellable. Right. That's why I think buying a whole carcass is the way to be better, to treat your farmers better, is to buy that whole thing. They've done their job, now you do yours. But, uh, you know, you're paying the same price per pound, typically, for all of the uh, internal organs. Um, and all, all we're really talking about is, 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 the por is the pork heart, or hearts, livers, um, and kidneys, uh, which are usually just left on the carcass, but you're not going to get lungs, you're not going to get spleen or pancreas. Those are probably, those are a little, you have to be more careful with too, right? Uh, yeah. Um, spleen, you do see, is an edible. There's, a, there's, there's quite a bit of muscle around it, but because it's so close to the gallbladder, you have to be very careful. Um, you know, this all has to come, you have to do all that separation at slaughter. Um, and when you pull the entirety of all of the intestinal tract and everything, it's done all at one time, and you try your best not to, not to have anything leak out, you have to you have to close off the trachea so nothing comes out of the stomach, all these steps. But it then goes into a, a they call it a palpitation station where they're basically, if they're selling the organ for human consumables, they they will inspect it all, looking for abnormalities, tumors, lesions, or anything like that. Um, if they're not inspected or have a HACCP plan to sell for human consumables, it still goes someplace. It usually goes to dog food or something like that. But only if they have a HACCP plan stating that they're pulling pancreas and they pull it a very specific way, will they do that? Or offal, or um, tongue is also technically considered offal. Oh, really? Yeah. That's so interesting. Because yeah. tongue is everywhere here. Yeah, lingua. It's, 
it's it's yeah. it's it's the jam. Actually, my friend Mauro, who used to work at Franklin, just cooked uh-huh. uh, aged lengua at Churrascada. Oh, so yeah. That the, was his big dish with risotto and the sofrito. Aged, and dry-aged uh, tongue is starting to become kind of popular. I've been seeing it pop up a lot more. Uh, and it actually is a cut that lends itself to aging very well. If you leave it intact and you leave all the cilia and the outer skin on it, like y- y- you're going to remove that either way, so why not let it age yeah. in that? You know, It kind of um, holds everything there's, in. There's no blood in it. Uh, there's, there's the root, which you can trim down a little bit, and that's probably if I was doing it, I would remove some of that, the bottom part of the tongue. Um, and then you just have the muscle of the tongue, and it's basically two muscles, um, and letting that age is really nice. I've actually never had it before, but I need to do that soon. <laughs> do you do much aging here? You yeah, get things we aged? Yeah, we've got a vintage dry aging booth that we bought when we first opened but only got working about a year ago. Um, we can put 40-something pieces of rib strips wow. um, or whatever in there at one time. Um, it's a really great case. It's a Frederick Free Floating Air case that was patented in the late 30s. I don't know when this was manufactured. Yeah, that's the old fridge that, that, that's there. Yeah, the old upright. It's beautiful. Kind of walked in. Yeah, it's black enamel. We have got a matching case uh, that's the same manufacturer and the same style uh, that all of our charcuterie is in. So we're really lucky to have found both of these. Um, but yeah, like I said, they date to patent date of the late 30s. In fact, when we, were, when we were gutting this, it didn't even have copper in it. It had uh, aluminum because uh, all the copper was going to the war effort at the time. Um, and wow. also, it also was a um, ammonia-based refrigeration system, so that's how old it was. Yeah. Wow. Um, but we got it in, retrofitted it, and put a new one in. We have more airflow in it than we need, uh, but that's good. You want a lot of airflow when you're dry-aging meat. Um, but, yeah, um, dry-aged beef is, I believe, not that it's really fallen out of fashion, but I think it's going to catch a lot of steam in the next five or ten years. Well, and I think Jess Pryle shops here, and she loves that stuff. Yeah. Oh, I mean... I've got a, definitely a handful of customers that they just seem to come out of the woodwork when I cut it. I, I usually only cut it on the weekends because you know, we really do our, our greatest volume of business between Thursday and Sunday. So I, I like to put the big guns out, as I like to say, on those days. And I've got one guy, David, if you're watching this, you know who you are. He is like my dry age fairy. As soon as I cut this, he like comes out of nowhere. He's like, hey. And you he, post it or something? Or he just knows? But usually, if I put it in a case, it's gone within an hour. Or wow. A good bit of it. You know, um, David will buy all of it. If he comes in before you and you want something, you better speak up because he will buy all of it. Um, you got to you know, buy it off him for and, a premium. Yeah, you know. And, you know, a lot of folks have never even had real good dry aged beef. Um, you know, it's not the only way to age beef. You know, wet aging is another way to go. Um, you get a better flavor in the end of the day with dry aging. Um, you get a very muddy, murky flavor with wet aging. It works. You get tender meat. You know, no, no disparaging the process at all. Um, but man, real good dry aged beef is like, like a good blue cheese or. You know, and you're talking like about long, like hundred days stuff well, like that. Well, I mean, you know, I, personally, my sweet spot for that is between fifty and sixty days, where I like personally my beef. Um, when you get over that, it gets extremely funky, and you wind up with. Like so you can get funky in two portions. months. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, we'll, we'll stick our nose in the booth here in a minute and you'll get a good whiff. Yeah. But, um, you know, we target 30 days for our restaurant, for our steaks. Um, you know, it's, it's, there's a couple of factors. You know, the longer it goes, the more trim off you're going to have. That's why the price keeps going up. The longer it goes, the less water is going to be there, the more the price has to right. go up. So it is like we basically have to cut test on a pretty regular basis to make sure that we're in line with our pricing so we're not, you know, under, underselling ourselves. Yeah, you don't want to lose money on all that work. Yeah, it is a lot of work. And, you know, ultimately, you know, we, we put really, when we put those steaks out, they're gorgeous. I mean, they're really like, faceted jewels you know when i'm done with them they only like really and those are very much a a a, a quick to medium sear you know well we do most of them very big like we do a full cowboy steak out of almost all the ribeyes that we cut so that's a that's a two inch steak not cut on a bandsaw cut by hand uh with just one rib bone in it um about two inches thick and you know that's 
you know, with everybody going to big green eggs these days and, and big cookers, that's nothing. You know, it's actually what you want. You want a bigger steak. And, you know, it's odd enough that a lot of people are kind of intimidated by those bigger cuts, but the reality is they're easier to cook. You have greater room for correction, and you're done this. Um, with a one-inch steak, you have to know what you're doing to nail it. If you want medium rare, you get, you get about a two- or three-minute window before you go too far. Uh, but on a two-inch cowboy, I mean, you can literally – throw it back on the fire after it's rested for 40 minutes and still keep cooking it, you know, and it's still not suffer from that, you know, so. Well, and I love the thicker cuts because you can kind of, you cook the edges too. Yes. And you can really render some of that fat and mm -hmm. you can, you just create this sealed flavor amazingness. So one thing I've been doing on like T-bones and porterhouses, you know, like I said, I cut, we cut them really thick, is that I'll leave a nice fat cap on the outside and then I'll go through and I'll basically like diamond score it, that oh, fat, really? to kind of open up some texture because... If you have a lot of that fat, and even if you have a pork chop that you got a lot of fat on, like go through and score that fat a little bit. That will allow the heat to penetrate and render that more, like you're saying. And then suddenly that's not so, that fat's not so off-putting or so heavy. You get a lot of, you know, great crispiness out of it. Uh, the, you know, the, the browning of it, everything's really nice. And I always like to rub in, you know, some actual seasoning into it, you know, like a little bit of garlic or a little black pepper into so that. So you're talking about the, the cap on there. You can literally just kind of cut. Yeah, I'm very, very it. thin, I, and I, you know, I got good sharp knives, so I can do it very small, yeah. and it's almost like um, like a millimeter. Like. Yeah, you know, so it's very fine. So when you cook it, it'll kind of it'll it'll flare up a little bit, and you can see it when it cooks. Really, it's really show-stopping, in my opinion. When you wow. On the well, I need to get a cowboy steak now and do yeah, that. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> so there's a lot of different people listen to the show that watch the show on YouTube, and a lot of them are home cooks. Some some are in pit rooms right now, but I always ask everyone what's their message to the enthusiasts the people that are now you know looking up hanger steaks mm -hmm. that are they're doing some googling because i almost did wanted to do some googling because i didn't fully understand everything we talked about <laughs> but it, it's a uh, it, it's great because it's all just a journey like you, yeah. you even though you're at a place you have a ton of knowledge you have a ton of experience you're one of the only people from america at the um world butchers challenge What's your message to the people that are still that are figuring out that are the lifetime learners like you that are listening right now? You know, seeking knowledge, you know, and asking questions. Um, you know, I've, I've found over the years one method that has worked for me the best is if you're around somebody who knows more than you and they're humble and respectable about it, you just need to shut up and listen. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, sure. you know, like, like I, I've had guys come into my shop and want to stage and they're, they're super jazz to be working beside me or whatever and they just keep going on about just talking or whatever and i'm yeah. like you're not you're not hearing if you're talking you know it's like what's the old uh, axiom uh, uh if, if you want to learn you have to pay attention or that's the cost is you have to pay attention basically and, and that's so true um now the trick to that is that you got to find those people who, who who know more and there's a lot of people who think they know more like that's that's for sure um and if you're a good judge of characters, you can figure that out pretty quick. For sure. But, but, you know, even somebody who may be completely wrong about something, there's still usually something that can be learned from that situation. Um, but uh, more to your question, though, like, you know, find a, a good shop. It doesn't have to be a butcher shop. It can be a grocery store. Find the guy with the most knowledge. He'll probably be one who actually doesn't mind talking. Uh, people who don't want to talk usually have a very shallow well of knowledge that they can really share. Um, so just ask a lot of questions about where stuff comes from. Ask what looks good today, you know, like that's another great way of getting really good cuts, uh, especially in my shop. If you ask me, there's something I've probably had my eye on that I want to take home for dinner and I'll gladly sell it to you. But if yeah. it's there at the end of the day, it's going home with me. Um, 
But yeah, you know, um, we're in a real like golden age of this right now. You know, to go back to what I was saying earlier about it being a renaissance, it's not just that people are interested in these things, but we now we have a we have information at our fingertips. You know, and these are things that like I didn't have. You know, a lot of people you know, just talk about learning how to be a butcher. Um, you know, a, a lot of people, you know, they want to learn. They don't know where to go to learn. There's very few schools. Uh, there's sure. very few opportunities to stage and to learn. There are some. Um, but, you know, you, you, you've got resources like YouTube uh, and these videos. You know, I'm sure one out of ten may be erroneous information or done wrong. But, again, there's probably something that can be learned from that as well. Um, but if I had those resources when I was first starting out, um, you know, I feel like I'd be ten years ahead of where I am now. Um, so my, I guess one thing I say is like, don't be disparaged if you can't go and learn from somebody who's a journeyman or has been doing it for a long time. Um, like, try to self-teach yourself, you know, because um, there's it's a completely legit way to learn butchery. Um, I would say though that what you need to focus on is the seams uh, and not trying to produce those large continental style cuts like bone-in chucks. And, and you're going to find both videos out there. But if right. you're looking for something, look for seam butchery videos. Um, and that's going to really, I think, it's, again, it's the most intuitive way of breaking down an animal. Like, it's basically a roadmap that's put together for you already. As long as you stay out of the muscles, you're okay. You can make mistakes. You'll learn from all that. But, but everything will come apart very easily. So you're saying seam as you're following kind of where the fat's going. Exactly. So each, between each muscle grouping, there's going to be a, a, a layer of tissue, fat typically, sometimes some other connective tissues and stuff like that that are going to separate each of these muscle groups. And um, there's, you know, some, some groupings stay together, like a ribeye is a ribeye with the longissimus dorsi as well as the spinalis. Like that's a ribeye. You don't want to separate those two seams unless you know how to. And you can merchandise them and you can eat them and sell them. You know, that's fine too. Um, but, you know, there's a, there's a lot of cuts that will just plop out very easily if you just follow the seams. Um, and then if you want to further your knowledge, like you may have to travel a little bit to, uh, to learn. Um, you know, I, I accept stages almost regularly here at the shop. Um, that said, it, it, I usually will talk to you for a long time. And what I always tell people is be persistent, but don't be a pest. If you're a pest, I'm not going to ask you to come in because right. to get back, like I, I, I don't want somebody to sit there and tell me how cool it is that they're working in my shop. I want them to show up and just watch because, like, you know, I, I'll talk. You wind me up, I'll talk, you know. But really where you're going to learn a lot is just watching me, learning body language, learn, like, muscle memory is a big part of butchery and kind of learning, like, if you watch me do a carcass, I'll do it the same way every time. And I could close my eyes and do it at this point now. Uh, and I'm not saying that you know, with any ego, but that's just how much my muscles, my body, and, and all that translates basically into how I'm cutting. And if you see anybody who's done things for a few times, you'll see them do it the same way every time. Or as an Austrian master butcher taught me once, he goes, every time's the same. And he's right. It's every time is the same. Uh, if you walk away from it in the middle, you can go back to it and know exactly where you left off. You know, there's a whole lot of you know, thought that can go into that. You yeah. Know. Well, and as far as if you're trying to get into your butcher shop or another butcher shop, if you get a no, rather than being a pest, go learn a little bit more. Yeah. Take the time and just put it in your calendar. Hey, in a week, I'm, you know, like when I do these interviews, even with you, like you're a busy person. So you have to be patient and say, hey, when, how's Friday? Okay, Friday doesn't work. How's Monday? How's Tuesday? And, and you have to be flexible. If you want something from someone you, you can't, you're not going to get it on your terms. You're going to get exactly. it on their terms. So be flexible and be willing to, you know, don't be mad when someone says no. Sometimes they're saying no because they just want to see how persistent you are. Yeah. Well, the big word you said there is patience, yeah. you know, and no knock on the young kids out there, but patience is a, is a hard lesson to learn. It's not something that you, I mean, I certainly in my 20s didn't have any patience either, um, but you find as you get a little older that the more patience you have, the greater the rewards will be. 
uh, in almost everything, whether it be learning how to cut meat or relationships or whatever. Um, you know, patience is key, and, and tempering yourself with that patience will make you better at just about everything, not just butchery, but, but, but just about everything. Well, luckily, we have uh, some very patient listeners who, who yeah, actually sure. enjoy. Uh, I've been checking my stats, and 90-plus percent of my listeners listen to the whole hour-plus episode. So, oh, that's cool. You know, yeah. I appreciate everyone's patience, and I, I'm thankful to have the, the scene that we have, and I appreciate you sitting down and talking yeah, to me, Yeah, sure thing, Yanni, man. It's a lot of fun, man. Yeah. Um, certainly, uh, hope everybody appreciated it. And yeah. if you're ever, you know, down on 7th Street in Chacon, uh, <laughs> we're here in Austin, Texas. Come and, to Salt and Time, yeah. get a burger, get some hearts, get some livers. Check out the World Butcher Challenge. Yep. Check out Brian's classes. There's so much interesting stuff happening in meat, and I'm, I'm so grateful to have a place in the middle of town that I can just come to and learn all about it. For sure, man. Thank you. Hey, to come in and meet, man. Y'all to see me eat, man. Hit on the meat, man. Y'all to see me eat, man. I got jaws like a bear trap, a teeth like a razor. I made tack tongue with a sensitive taster. I was born out in Texas called the land of beef. Never catch a muscle greener, showing the hell that I can meet him to meet, man. Y'all to see me eat, man.